Before we start the show today, I just want to say thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. After we were done recording this show, John said, please, please uh, thank the, the Patreon folks for me again. And I said, I will do that. We both say thank you. The Patreon supporters are making it possible for us to focus less on sponsors and focus more on making a a really good program for you. And there's bonus material in there just for the Patreon supporters. Fun stuff like John's new secret song, uh, Sleepless, and other things like that. The only way you'll hear any of that stuff is if you support the show on Patreon. But you can support it for as little as a buck a month if you want. Or you can do it for more than that. Uh, It's up to you. We appreciate it. And every single dollar really helps. We could use more of you. There's a lot of listeners right now who are not supporting, and we need your help to be a sponsor-free, listener-supported program. Go to patreon.com slash roadwork to help support the show. Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan. What's up? How are you doing? I like it. You I like, like that. Care about your hearing. Yeah, it's like you're running. You're you're running from the other side of the gym. I really think that's a good. That's a good opening. I'm about probably about four feet away. Yeah, it's like when Grover says, <laughs> "Far." <laughs> yeah. Plop, 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 near. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you're the kind of the you're the Grover of this podcast. <laughs> I I like that. I will. Yeah. I will take that. <laughs> um, how are you? I am doing well. I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Good, good. Ooh, a little groggy. Yeah. Well, you know what? It doesn't seem like you had much sleep. I want to. Can I tell the listeners what happened behind the scenes? Sure. So last night I was asleep when John texted me at 1 a.m. my time, saying that he was wondering if we could record a little bit earlier today. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for, for some dumb reason, I had to be up really early. I was up at like by six o'clock this morning and I texted John and I said, sure, we can do that. And he said, great right away. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that was 6am my time, which yeah. is four in the morning, your time. Yes. You are up pretty late. Yes. Four in the morning is pretty late to be up. Um, Even for and- an artist. Yeah, and you know, if I don't mo- if I don't keep a good handle on it, I'll always spiral out. I I think of it as like um yeah, it's like losing traction on a dirt road. <laughs> and then I'm then it's 4:30 in the morning and it's just like ah uh, because I do have things to do during the day. Sure. So it's not like in the old days when I could sleep till 1 in the afternoon. So I have to you know, like this morning, I between whatever it was, four o'clock to four thirty when I went to sleep, and now it's still morning. I woke up a half a dozen times each time, you know, kind of grabbing my clock, thinking, "Oh boy, you know, have I only got ten minutes left?" And it was one of those mornings where I kept wake. You know, I woke up at like five thirty, yeah, seven. Uh. <laughs> 815 you know and each time i was like oh there's a little bit more sleep i can have yeah but definitely right now i'm feeling that that feeling of like your where your eyes are kind of pinchy and you can't quite get them to at least i don't know if everybody has this problem or if it's just me but like my eyes are sort of yeah little crabs yeah and i have to kind of you know 
throw water on them a few times and whack them just to get them going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just sort of. I'm a, it's a, a sign. Of, a sign of our 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 exceptionally increased age. I think. <laughs> I am a train wreck. I really am. But I but, remember. Uh, but I remember in I high school, John. I would wait. I would wake. I had it timed perfectly so that literally there was not a spare second. I would wake up at the absolute latest I possibly could to do everything I needed to do to basically get from my bed into first period. <laughs> at this, you know, the, there's the absolute latest possible way to do it and not be late. And, <laughs> you know, it, it involved cutting a lot of corners. Yeah, I bet. That's what I remember. <laughs> a lot uh, of, in- a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, sort of, you know, what, like I didn't quite take a shower, but I did put my head under the faucet of the tub. Yeah. And did that, you eat, or you eat a banana while you were running out the door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My mom got to the point in high school where she not only did she spend a while threatening uh-huh. with you but then. <laughs> yeah. But then actually did come in in the morning and throw cold water on me while I was sleeping more than once. More than once. Oh my gosh. Until I was terrorized. I mean, not like a little, <laughs> not like split, split, split. But she took a giant like bucket, filled it with cold water oh and God. then whoosh. And she did it. She did it a handful of times so much so that, uh, or enough that when I would hear the faucet run in the morning, it was like, I would leap out of bed like a Pavlovian response to fly yeah. out of, right out of bed because boy, you do know that's not how you want to wake up out of a deep sleep. But I was very hard to dislodge, uh, in the morning and still, still <laughs> am. My sister is very grouchy in the morning. I'm not grouchy. I wake up and shake it off and go, oh, all right, all right, all right. And but you have, co- my, you have to have coffee or are you okay without coffee for a while? Uh, either one is fine. I mean, I, I, I prefer to have coffee, but I, I can start the day and get, get out into the world and not, I don't need it, you know, but my sister is just angry. She's angry at you. She's angry at the sun and angry for a while. Like <laughs> she wakes up cause she's also a, a middle of the nighter. But um, but she doesn't want to get up in the morning. She doesn't want to see your face. And if and if it's like, hey, wake up, we're going to the place where they're going to give you a bowl of gold. <laughs> She's still furious about it. She's furious at you for telling her that you're going to go get a bowl of gold. She's just mad. And I've never. Uh, so, you know, my mom and I just steer completely clear of her. You wouldn't want to throw a bucket of water on her. She'd be a Tasmanian devil. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, when we're traveling together or when we have to interact with my sister in the morning, it's always like, wake up. And then it's like you threw a grenade into a barrel and you're oh just like, wake up. And then you just run Get out to of the, the other side of the house. Yeah. And just let her let her do her thing or rage at her rage at the walls. But yeah, I was up late last night watching Soundgarden videos because the old the old uh, grunge, Seattle grunge scene. 
the old Seattle grunge scene because Chris Cornell died in the middle of the night. Last night? Yeah. Really? I didn't, I haven't heard that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, one of the disadvantages of being up at four o'clock in the morning is that you get all the middle of the night 52 years old. 52. 52. And for whatever reason, you know, I was just sort of scanning and I went over uh, and took a look at Facebook and, and all of my grunge friends, it was one of those terrible moments where there were these, there were these threads that were like, oh no. And then 50 comments, because all grunge people are up super late. Right. 50 comments that were like, I can't believe it. No. Sad face. No. I'm so sorry for your loss, this type of thing. And I'm just like, so I'm reading through a couple of them and I know that somebody's died and I, and I'm like, somebody tell me who you're talking about. And then Jonathan Poneman, who uh, owns Sub Pop Records, who's, you know, he's not on Facebook posting like all the time he's not like oh my god here's a great recipe or whatever he's he's pretty sparing but then he says i can't believe it and i'm like fucking poneman's got sad feelings this has got to be somebody serious yeah um and serious like in our world right it's not just like John Poneman is not going to be like, oh, I can't believe it. You know, Pierre Trudeau died. It's 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 going to be significant to me at that point. And so I'm like, oh, God, you know what? I'm, I'm trying to think who. Who's next? You know, like there have been a lot of people from our scene that have died over the years. And there's like, you know, it's not like I can count Robin Williams as a member of our scene, but, but it felt that felt kind of family or connected a little bit. Uh, and then somebody said, you know, Oh, Chris was so young. And I was like, Chris, what possible Chris could it be? And I'm, I'm scanning in my mind, all the Chris's. Mm. Cause this is before it was even in the news anywhere. Really? Uh, well, so then, but with my, with Chris as my clue, Mm. I was able to find, uh, because, because again, it's in the middle of the night, all the news sources that are covering it are all British. Uh, you know, the guardian and the telegraph are first on the scene. Um, and then I watched it unfold as it went from. Chris Cornell inexplicably dead. And then I started getting texts and again, it's four in the morning. So who, so everybody else is up too, I guess. But I start getting, you know, a few texts from friends that are like, Chris Cornell's not on drugs. I mean, he, he was on drugs, but he was never one of the, he was never one of the bad drug people, right? Chris was always sort of like a dad to, did you know him or Seattle scene? I didn't, I didn't know him, but you know, I was, I was right here for all of that time. And I, and so I remember being 22 when he was 26 and 
I, I, I was thinking about it. Like I know so many people now. I count so many people as friends that were part of that big uh, musical moment. But the guys I never knew were Kurt and Lane and Chris and Lanigan. Um, like I never knew any of those guys. I I know the bass players of all those bands, kind of, or the you know, or the drummers. Like I'm friends with Barrett Martin. I'm friends with Chris Novoselic, but friends with Duff, but I, but I never knew like the, the big, the front men because it was just, there was just that little bit of generation gap. They right, were, sure. they were just that far ahead of me, but I had a very strong feeling about Chris Cornell. You know, he was one of the main guys around here. It was like, he was a tribal elder <laughs> and, and you know, you pick it, you pick a side, right? I mean, you pick, you pick your, you pick the people you admire and I did admire all those people. Like Lane, Lane Staley was the one that was the most distant from me in terms of me having any sort of picture of him or like knowledge of him. Lane already felt like far away somehow. Mm-hmm. One of the, one their, their song man in a box was like, a radio hit. It was kind of the first radio hit from Seattle. And it was a radio hit right about when I moved to town. So in a way, Alice in Chains felt like the first Seattle band that was, that was really, I mean, and I can't even say man in the box was a huge radio hit, but it was a tune that, that seemed like it seemed like a hit. It sounded like a hit. But Soundgarden was the was always the center for me, and I think for a lot of people because Nirvana was from Aberdeen. They weren't from Seattle. They were from free, you know they were a, a band that came up out of Olympia, and they got lumped in because they got lumped in with Seattle because it was a regional scene, and they they moved to Seattle. But Soundgarden was like Seattle all the way. Yeah. And Chris had roomed with Andrew Wood and and uh and he was he just felt like the responsible one. You know what I mean? Like his girlfriend was Susan Silver, who was a big part of the business. You know, she was a big Seattle manager, and Chris was not a a junkie. He was smart. He was a little bit, uh, he, but he was smart, but he wasn't sarcastic. You know, the way Kurt Cobain was always just so snide Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that resonated with me. It resonated with everybody here. That feeling of like, I don't want your stupid money, man. Or whatever, like that, <laughs> that felt real. It didn't just feel like a pose. Yeah. But Kurt was never able really to like progress much beyond that. Like there was a moment in time when 
Kurt Cobain could have really stood up and and become a political figure, you know, and I don't mean run for office, but like he had enough people listening to him that he could have said and done things that were, you know, that had a, a major effect on, you know, a profound effect. And right. instead it was sort of like he's fighting with Eddie Vedder, fighting with Axl Rose and his attitude was all, it never, it never evolved beyond like, Corporate rock music sucks. Right. Um, and Cornell never was bratty that way. He always felt grown up. And what, what's, what's interesting, I mean, watching their music videos last night, which, you know, anymore, it's like, I just, I want to hear burden in my hand. The easiest way to do it is watch the video, you know? Um, but what's crazy is that they they were the first grunge band, the first Seattle band to sign to a major, I think. And so before grunge had a visual identity, Soundgarden was already kind of on their way. They were they were the they were the pioneers. They were the ones that were um already in the show, you know. And Nobody knew how, nobody knew what they were or how to package them. So their early music videos are all Chris Cornell's got his shirt off. Right. There's like fire <laughs> in the background. Yeah. He's, he's like got a chain or several chains and he's screaming and he's mad. He's throwing dirt and, uh, you know, and Ben Shepard is looking weird and punk and scary and, um, you know, the whole band is just sort of it. They're a little bit like cheap trick. Um, in the sense that, you know, the way cheap trick has two guys that are really handsome and that, that projected handsomeness in all their fashion choices, right? Like the two guys in cheap trick that, combed their hair, put hairspray in it and wore like rock and roll clothes. <laughs> right. And we're like, we're a rock band. We're rockers. You know, we that like two of the guys in cheap trick look like they could be an Aerosmith and two of the guys in cheap trick do not look like they are in a band at all. You know, they look like, um, they look like two guys that, uh, that are, I mean, Bunny Carlos, I always really loved his look. He just had such a cool, he just looked like, he looked super cool to me, but he looks like an aircraft, or he looks like a, like an, like a, yeah, an aircraft controller, <laughs> right? Like he looks like somebody that's sitting in a control tower in 1977. <laughs> he's got his, his little round glasses on and he's got his, his cigarette going and Soundgarden was the same way. Like, like Matt Cameron and Chris Cornell were both really attractive guys and they had cool rock and roll hair and they looked very cool, like rock people. And Ben Shepard was a guy from Kitsap County who, you know, 
who looked like he tried to get in the into the Navy, but the Navy wouldn't take him because he already had a criminal record. And so somehow he ended up playing the bass in this huge band, but he could just as easily have ended up being a mechanics mate in the Washington state ferry system. Right. And then Kim Thale, honestly, is one of the first like um, Indian rock stars that, that, that I can think of. He was the only guy that had a full beard in rock and roll Mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's hard now to remember a time when Kim Thale seemed really exotic, but he did. It was, it was that, I mean, Chris, Chris Cornell seemed exotic too with his little, his little, uh, Van Dyke beard. Right. But then Kim Thale and, you know, and, and the original bass player of Soundgarden was Hiro Yamamoto and there aren't a whole lot of Japanese rock people either at that time. Right. I mean, you so, had, so, uh, the guy in Smashing Pumpkins and was the only other one I can think of. But, you know, Soundgarden predated them. Yeah, they did, didn't they? So it was very, they were very exotic looking. But anyway, these early videos, it's like, are these guys metal or what are they? And so all they're, they're just terrible representations of what the band is. And that kind of was established there thereafter, you know, like a video for nine inch nails that has like, uh, monkeys being electrocuted or whatever. It makes sense given the vibe of (laughs) nine inch nails and what, you know, what they're going for, which is just like, future scary dark you know sketchy but soundgarden what is that music you know it's kind of it's kind of zeppelin-y but mm-hmm. it feels very modern but it just does not feel like <laughs> whips and chains and I think later on there are some videos that are like, we're in a mental institution. And it's like, no, you guys aren't crazy either. You kind of wish you could go back to the start and say, and, and allow Soundgarden to establish themselves within the context of that grunge look that came later. And I don't just mean the, the Pearl jammy sort of boots and flannel, Soundgarden did have that, but I, I just mean that much more like our videos are just going to have themes. They're going to be stories because Chris's songs, they did have stories. I don't know. He was a huge influence on me. And so, so it's just shocking when somebody like that dies because you have to confront the fact or evaluate the fact that, Oh, you know what? I wasn't ready for him to die. Right. And, and he's meaningful to me, but you know, I'm a guy in his forties. All my friends are too. How do we, where do we put those feelings? Mm-hmm. You know, you can't quite, he, I didn't know him, right? He's not, he's not somebody that's close to me enough that, that I, I'm going to like call my, friends and and uh share but in fact that's what's happening we're all sort of reaching out to each other and sharing 
And, uh, yeah, so weird. So I was up late, but I was up late then maybe even a little bit later because I was watching all these, you know, watching these videos and listening to these songs. Yeah, I mean, it really, it and there, just from what I read after you mentioned it, it sounds like it's maybe a suicide. It's, they're not sure yet. There's, you know, it's kind of uh, up in the air still. Yeah, well, that <clears throat> that part of it, I was following the story as that aspect of it broke. At first, it was just like, Chris Cornell died at 52, and you're sitting there going, what, what? drug yeah. overdose? Right. I mean, that's just, but you know, nobody expected Prince to overdose either. True. So it was like, maybe, I mean, he's been looking a little ragged lately, frankly. Um, yeah, maybe you never know who's, who slipped and, and did it wrong one time, but it just didn't seem in character. And a lot of the people that were that I was talking to were like, it must have been a massive heart attack or some kind of, you know, he just played a, a big, long Soundgarden set and he went back and he had some genital heart thing. Right. That seemed the logical thing. But then it comes out, you know, that they find him in the bathroom and there's something around his neck. And you go, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Like. He never was somebody that advertised that he was depressed. He advertised that he was, that he had his eyes open and he was cynical about the world. Um, but he, you know, he was not coming from that place of like, uh, that life is, is unbearable. And, and I've had some, I've had a couple of suicides that were fairly close to me in recent years. And, you know, and I have struggled with depression uh, throughout my adult life. And that stuff just really uh, is devastating to me. It's just a real kick in the, in the stomach. Yeah, for real. Because, you know, primarily because you want all three, if you're, if you are, a depressive, you really think it's going to get better. You, you, or at least I did. I kept thinking that it was going to <clears throat> moderate at some point. I couldn't possibly, it couldn't possibly get worse. I mean, you know, I, I just, I always have assumed it was something I would not exactly grow out of, but yeah, a little bit. Um, and to, you know, to lose people to suicide where it's like, oh, shit, it, it just got worse and worse or it, it or in a way it never got better. Like I said, I said repeatedly about Robin Williams that whatever that whatever that day was, it certainly was not Robin Williams's worst day. He's had so many worse days than that day. Yeah, that was just the day that he couldn't take it anymore. Right. It probably wasn't that bad of a day. He got up, he had some orange juice, he went and did his thing. You know, he's a wealthy guy now. He's not on drugs anymore. Um, It's just that that was the day where he was like, uh, fuck it. And, <clears throat> and it d- didn't seem like he'd planned it, but on the other hand, it seemed like he'd probably been thinking about it for a long time. Yeah. And, 
and you know, I lost somebody close to me uh, within a little uh, about a year of that, and it was the same thing. Like after after all of this, after everything we've done, after all the years, it's like now forty six years old. But yeah, you know, you, you just run out of steam. And so, but it, again, it just didn't seem, I mean, I, I don't know Chris Cornell, but it, but I know him at one remove. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know Kim Thale, but, <clears throat> but I've, I've met Kim Thale. I've been, I've been around Kim Thale, but I have friends that know those guys. Mm-hmm. And so, so you do get an impression even of people that you don't know very well. Like, you know, I don't know. There are a lot of people I don't know that I still feel like I have a good sense of. So I was just like, what the fuck? Some secret. There's some secret drag, some monkey that's been on Chris Cornell this whole time that he never revealed. It just seemed, uh, even more tragic if you want to if you want to think of it in terms of his aloneness but then this morning then this morning the, the story gets weirder because his wife says publicly now he had no history of depression he was not depressed she talked to him that day he's not a depressed person at all so you go okay that seems right that does seem like who he is. And, but then she said, he didn't reply to me early in the morning, which means after his show right. somewhere back in the hotel, they have, they must have some arrangement where he gets back to the hotel and calls her. He didn't reply when I reached out to him. So I called hotel security. At first the story was she called a friend who went and kicked down the door. Oh, now she's saying that she called hotel security and they went into the room. I don't know where this like friend kicking down the door story comes from, but if your husband doesn't reply to you immediately at two o'clock in the morning after a massive show in Detroit, do you really send a friend to kick down the door? That seems like a, <clears throat> I don't know the ins and outs of their relationship, but it seems a little severe, a little bit of a oversized reaction. Mm-hmm. If you really have no feeling that the person is in at risk. Right. right. Like, I mean, that has to, that's a very good way to look at it because, you know, you would think if things were going just fine that she'd say, Oh, I'm, I'm sure he was just tired or maybe he's having a cup of coffee with his friends after the show. You know, you wouldn't immediately say kick down the door. Right. Because he got done playing the show, presumably pretty darn late. Right. And yet I'm already aware of his suicide or all, I'm sorry, already aware of his death by like three o'clock in the morning. So there wasn't a lot of time in there for all that to go down. He went back to his hotel after the show and then his door's getting kicked down and he's already dead. Right. And it's in the news within the space of like just a few hours. So something about it is like, Hmm, 
I don't know what's going on. And is this a Michael Hutchins situation? That seems weird too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that whole Michael Hutchins situation seemed weird, but it was the first time we'd heard about it. First time a lot of us had even heard about the technique. So it was, so we talked about it, you know, it was a subject of some fascination. But. And then who was the other guy, David Carradine, that had the same thing? Is that right? Yeah, you're talking about the asphyxiation thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think David Carradine, Kung Fu, had the Hmm. same. Autoerotic asphyxiation. Yeah. But it again, it just doesn't seem like something. Chris Cornell was always an adult, and it's not to say that that isn't adult-like, but but that feels pretty ed. You know, that's like edging, right? You're you are getting off on taking it right to the edge. Yeah. And you know, this guy's got two kids under the age of twelve, and. He loves his wife and he's out headlining a big tour. Maybe, you know, this is the thing that I can never know is like, I am not a stadium rock musician and I haven't been a stadium rock musician since I was 25. And what is that like? I mean, I'm sure he gets out of the show. It's not like he has to load gear. You know what I mean? He's he, his whole life, as a as a musician past the point because Soundgarden used to play in I mean they used to play at the Ditto Tavern here in Seattle I mean this is like a flat the audience is at the, uh, standing on the same floor that you are which is a a slippery beer soaked tile floor and you're just screaming into a guitar amp I mean Soundgarden had the had the the rock and roll start as as low as anybody. But but for over two decades, Chris Cornell has walked off the bus immediately onto the stage where everything is ready. The audience is already there. Right. He does his show. He says, thank you, good night, walks off the stage, down a flight of stairs. People are running after him with towels and, and water. And he walks immediately. I don't think he stops before he's immediately back on the bus or in a car and on his way to somewhere, which is phenomenal. Uh, it sounds good to me. I can't imagine it in context of what it's like for me to be on tour, which is you get done. I mean, we just played a show. The Long Winters just played a show last week. And in that instance, I brought a bag of kazoos to sell for $5 each. And I said, you know, I hit my last chord and I was like, thank you everyone. I'll be selling kazoos right here. (laughs) And I immediately sat down, uh, crisscross applesauce on the (laughs) stage with my bag of kazoos and the audience, which was formerly right there, continued to be there as they all reached into their pockets. And, you know, I sold $150 worth of $5 kazoos. Nice. Chris Cornell's not selling kazoos from the stage. No. Um, but then, you know, you got to load. I mean, you get home in the middle of the night because because what you really are is a teamster when you're in a small rock band. Like 
eighty percent of the work you do is is would qualify you as a teamster. Yeah. But I don't know what it's like, the feeling of isolation to be Chris Cornell and go to some enormous hotel, some great suite, and you've been doing it for decades and you're just sort of like wandering around your hotel room and your wife and kids are somewhere else and you're FaceTiming with them. You know, I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on in, inside him. Maybe he is tying a belt around a bathroom door. Uh, because that's what, you know, cause that's what focuses him or, or, you know, that's what contextualizes his experience somehow. Right. It's, it's crazy to speculate because who knows and how, and it may be another one of these that we don't ever know, but, but yet you, you don't expect these things and it's, and it's confusing. It, it's not confusing when you're 23 and somebody ODs because it just feels like, well, you flew a little too close to the sun there, Icarus. Yeah. yeah. And it's a tragedy to lose somebody for such a stupid thing. Um, but in the last couple of years, I've lost... Uh, uh, not to suicide, but to um, like that wave of death that comes in middle age where just uh, there are just people that die at 50. And three people that played in the long winters died in the last couple of years. Mm. Um, and one of them was just a total shock and surprise. And two of them had like terminal illnesses. And you just go, oh, well, like this is also kind of awful and weird. That, that scythe that comes along and takes, takes a, a group of people in their early 40s or 50s. Right. And I'm guessing from here on out, it's going to be like, oh, now there's that group of people that all die when they're 55. Um, and I'm going to lose another stretch of friends. And you just hope that you're not, I just hope that I'm not one. I have high blood pressure. You know, I don't get enough exercise. I don't want to be one of the people that dies at 55. And everybody goes, well, what happened? Was he hanging from a door? Yeah, I don't want you to do that. No, it just turned out that he had one extra slice of cake that day and it was the slice of cake that killed him All right he died in the bathtub with a half of a piece of cake on his bath desk and a half finished sudoku book you know that's not that's not what i want no if that happens you guys it wasn't suicide or uh, or or maybe it was it was just a long it was just a two decade long suicide it's horrible Ugh. It's an upbeat, upbeat show. <laughs> we would like to say thank you very much to Squarespace for their continued support of Roadwork. Make your next website with Squarespace. Why? Because they have everything. They have these beautiful award-winning designer templates. 
that allow you to go and get started and have a website from start to finish in about five minutes, not exaggerating. You can make a, a website, you can make an online store, and it's the most beautiful way to represent your ideas online. It's an all-in-one platform, lets you do everything. There's nothing to install, there's nothing to patch, there's nothing to upgrade, you don't have to worry about security, none of that stuff. And then we've got 24-7 customer service. You can go and register your own domains there. That's a new thing. I mean, you've always been able to register a domain uh, if you signed up for a whole year, but now you can go and just register the domain. It's Squarespace. It's a one-stop shop. They've got everything. Like I said, they've, you can sell stuff. You can host your music there. You can even host a podcast there. Any kind of website. Musicians, designers, artists, restaurants, and more. You name it, you can do it with Squarespace. And what's nice about it is you don't need to spend a ton of time building the site. Spend your time doing the thing that you love to do and make it easy by using Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code ROADWORK, one word, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. And you'll also be showing a ton of support for ROADWORK. So thank you very much to squarespace.com for supporting this program. And you don't forget, use that code roadwork for 10% off. Yeah, that that era and those those people, I can never know what it seems like to to anybody else because it looms pretty large in my world because it was where it was the cauldron where I was where I made those decisions, those fateful decisions that, that, that produced me, right? I, if I had at 21 years old, if I had moved to New York and tried to join a literary scene, like I could have, and that would have been a very different, an entirely different life for me at 21 years old. I could have, I, I in fact did, you know, my plan at 21 years old was to move to Telluride, Colorado and be a ski instructor, man. And I did move to Telluride. I've been to Telluride. It's a nice place. To hell you ride. Is that what it's short for? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I like that. Uh, you know, it was a mining town. Um, but I went to Telluride. I went to the ski instructor office and I said, here I am ready to, ready for you to hire me. And they said, well, it's October. And we don't hire until late November. So come back. I was like, ah, man, you got to cool my heels around here for a month and a half. Like I don't have any money. I don't have any, I don't have any place to go. I didn't think this all the way through. I wanted to get here in October because I didn't want to get here and have you say you'd hired everybody already. I want to be first in line, but it didn't occur to me that I would just be sitting, you know, like I don't even, I didn't have a car I could live in. I had hitchhiked there. So I was just going to, I guess I was going to just hang out in bars until somebody said, you can sleep in my shed. And then I was hanging out in bars and somebody said, Hey, you want to go to Boulder for Halloween? And Boulder is a long way from Telluride, both by the, by the crow, route and certainly by the roads. But I was like, Boulder, you know, Boulder is a famous, it's 
famously fun on Halloween. And it used to be insane on Halloween. It was a freaking police riot. <laughs> and the year that, and this year, um, which would have been 1990, Halloween of 1990, yeah. Boulder was actually like a freaking riot. Um, like a tear gas p- police uh, gangbang. And we were all like, everybody, all the, the kids were like tripping because it was the, it was also a high LSD, LSD time. <laughs> and uh, it was a crazy night. And immediately afterward, uh, my dad called and said that my aunt had died and that they were having a funeral in Seattle. She died suddenly. And uh, that he would fly me from Denver to Seattle if I wanted to come to the funeral. And I thought, yeah, I'll fly out to Seattle. I'll go to the funeral and then I'll come. That's perfect. Then I'll come back and it'll be, you know, it'll be mid-November at that point, And then I'll, then I'll be ready to, get my Telluride job and I flew out to Seattle for the funeral and then realized that my father had bought me a one way ticket to Seattle. Oh man. He had not bought me a round trip ticket to on purpose. You know, he didn't at that point he did not feel like I had anything going on in Colorado and he was right. Um, but he didn't check with me and it was at a time when one-way tickets were not unusual. Right. You know, now it's just like, you have to go out of your way to buy a one-way ticket. Sure. But then, it's just like, yeah, I want a ticket from Colorado to Seattle. One way. So then I was in Seattle, and it was November of 1990, and I didn't know, I didn't have a reason to I didn't have any money, so I didn't have any way to get back to Colorado. And I, and my plan to be in Telluride was not such a great plan that I was ready to, um, oh, wait a minute. Holy shit. I'm forgetting this. I'm forgetting the fact that I actually did go <clears throat> stick out my thumb <laughs> to head East. And I, I guess my plan was to go back to Colorado and I stuck out my thumb <clears throat> and I couldn't get a ride. And so I got on the city bus, Seattle city bus, and I took it as far east as it would go, which at the time I think was Issaquah, Washington. You know, you can take the commuter bus, basically. I took the bus all the way out to Issaquah, and then I stuck my thumb out on the side of the road there. And so it's like November 5th or 6th, 1990, and it's pouring down rain, just freezing rain, 8 o'clock at night. And I'm standing at an, at an on-ramp to I-90 East with my thumb out. And I stood there. I could have stood there until I turned into a pillar of salt. I was no more going to get a ride. It was just like. Every single car that drove by splashed me with cold, muddy water. It was a terrible, terrible several hours of standing next to this Denny's out there with my thumb out. Just like, come on, somebody. 
is going over the mountains and somebody wants to take me and nobody did. And by the time, by the time I was, I'd been there a while, I just was bedraggled and starting to feel pretty desperate because I had taken this bus all the way out to mini mall land. You know, there wasn't any place for me to, I, I, I couldn't, I wasn't going to curl up somewhere out there. No, I was going to, basically I was going to spend the night in a Denny's is what it was starting to look like. And, um, and I had a friend in Seattle and I went, I schlepped over to the Denny's and I went to a pay phone and I called this friend and I was like, Oh man, I'm in Issaquah and it's all terrible. And he was like, you're in Seattle. What are you doing? Come hang out. Let's go party. And it was such a great relief. Like, Oh, somebody wants to, somebody's offering me the opportunity to go party. Yes. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm in Issaquah. And he said, get back on the bus and take it back into Seattle and I'll meet you and we'll go rage. And so I did. <laughs> I, I was like, what a great idea. Like I hadn't even occurred to me. And I got back on the bus and I went back to Seattle and I met my friend Brian and we went out. I think like at that time he was like really into Murphy's pub or something. You know, he wanted to go to the Irish bars. And I was like, Irish bars as good as, you know, any old bar in a storm. There you go. And then we're, you know, we're there at the Irish bar and Brian's like, well, where are you staying? And I said, do you remember earlier tonight when I called you from a Denny's in Issaquah? I don't have any place to stay. I didn't even expect to be here. I was hoping to get to Spokane. And he's like, oh, well, and he, his mom, who was a hippie, had a, I swear to fucking God, a Vanagon, a Volkswagen Vanagon parked in a carport behind her house. And he said, my mom's not going to be into it, but you can stay in her van again. Because I think Brian was living at his mom's house at that time. And so that was my original foothold in Seattle. Was I very tenuous? My first home was a van again in a carport. <laughs> and from there, you know, the rest was history. I mean, I was at Soundgarden's, LP release party for Bad Motorfinger, which was their third record and their the one that catapulted them to mainstream fame. They played two nights, once at the off ramp and once at the Rock Candy. Both places had a capacity of about four to five hundred people, but that was at a time when we. Uh, clubs in Seattle just like flouted the fire department. So these clubs that had a capacity of 500 people would put 800 people mm. in. And it was just like a, a total human pig pile, <laughs> but nobody cared because it, it felt amazing. You know, you're in this space and you just like you're completely crushed. People are climbing up the walls like really trying to find like a place to see the band. People would just, you know, get up on, find little perches where they're standing on top of the fire extinguisher mount or something. And, uh, those shows were incredible. Those Soundgarden shows were 
incredible. They blew my mind. They were like stadium rock shows, but happening in these little clubs. We would like to say thank you very much to our sponsor, Gateway 17. Gateway 17 is kind of interesting. It's uh, So you've heard of Alibaba, right? Alibaba, if you don't know, is the Chinese version of Amazon kind of mashed up together with Google. It's huge. Uh, they have about 500 million consumers. That is active individual human beings, more than the U.S. population, are over there using Alibaba to buy stuff and to sell stuff. Alibaba has created a huge marketplace, but they really want U.S. businesses to fill this demand. They connect everything from inventory to marketing, from translation and payment to shipping and returns. You just supply the product and they put it in front of 500 million consumers. So what if you like want to start a business and you don't have a product? I read a story, a really interesting story about a guy who found the benefits of wearing like blue blocker glasses while he was in front of his computer. It eased his eye strain. He was a gamer. And he thought, you know what? I want to like make and sell these. Like I want to do this as a business. He went to Alibaba and found a distributor, a manufacturer there who was making really good blue blockers. Like he got samples because they send you samples and stuff. And he put this together and started a business where he didn't even, he didn't even have to handle or touch anything. They like custom, they put his logo on the, on the glasses and he built a site and on, on Alibaba and started selling right through that and made it, I guess I was like, that's his business now just doing that. But this is the kind of thing that you can do. There's tons of ideas, but I'm not even doing a very good job of explaining it. You know who would do a really good job of explaining it? Someone like David Abney, the CEO of UPS or Charlie Rose or Jack Ma. These are some of the speakers that are going to be at this event explaining to you exactly the kinds of amazing stuff you can do over there at Alibaba. So the event, it's a two-day event. It's in Detroit. It's June 20th and 21st. Gateway17.com is a place to go to learn more about this. And here's the special deal. Regular price for these tickets to go to this event to see Charlie Rose and David Abney and the other folks speak is 500 bucks. But listeners to Roadwork only pay $125. It's 75% off. Prices are going to go up May 25th. So you don't have that much time if you want to get in on that. I'd like to go just to hear the speakers. Gateway17.com and enter the code ROAD when you register and you will pay only $125. Pretty good deal. Thanks to Alibaba. Gateway17.com. Code is ROAD. I ended up crashing at somebody else's house after Brian's mom told me I had to get out of her backyard. I ended up crashing at another guy's house, Eric, Eric Singletary, who was a guy from Anchorage who let me, I think he let me stay at his house because he thought I was just crashing there on my way to somewhere. <laughs> and then I just started <laughs> just living stayed. there. He had a papasan in the living room. And I don't know if you've ever slept on a papasan, but it's not a very comfortable place to sleep. And I slept on this papasan for months. And, and I had a papasan in college. I loved that thing. But did you did you sleep on no, it? No, never, never. Yeah, no, it's not a good. It's it's not. It's not designed to sleep there night after night. But Eric tells the story that he and his roommates eventually decided to move, like move to a different house. And part of their motivation in moving to a different house was to move away from me. And I really. 
found out where their new house was and stopped by to bring them some something and then uh, ended up just crashing there that night and then <laughs> crashed at their new house for several weeks until they finally had like a house meeting. Where, like you have to stop living with us. You have to go away. But I was staying at Eric's and you know, those guys would all get up in the morning and go to work. And I, I didn't have any work and the phone rang and the guy on the other end of the line said, Hey, we need you at the, sh is this Eric? We need you at, at a show tonight. And Eric, and I said, no, it's not Eric. It's his friend, John. And he said, Oh, well, okay. Can you work the show tonight? <laughs> Such loyalty to their employee. <laughs> we that, just well, need a human being. Yeah, Eric had a job, you know, this was just something he did on the side. And I was like, yeah, I can work the show tonight. And he said, great. It's Agent Orange at the OK Hotel. Uh, be there at seven. And I got there and he said, you know, he took a look at me and he was like, OK, you're working. You're working the stage. And at that point, it was. They hired a couple of people to actually like crouch on the stage while the band played because so many people in the audience were trying to get on the stage. Um, that was the scene at the time you would get up on the stage and either stage dive off or just get up and, and rampage, get up and, and dance on the stage and try and interact with the singer until somebody grabbed you. And threw you off the stage. So that was my job at that show. Was the, you were a thrower? I was like, you know, the, the mandate was keep people off the stage because if they get up on the stage, they're going to try and stage dive. If they do get on the stage, throw them off. It was a little bit of a mixed message because I would throw them off in exactly the same way that they were trying to stage dive. Like I would grab them by the back of their pants and huck them into the crowd <laughs> And in, in most cases, somebody would get up there and they were, they would kind of turn to me and go like, okay, like huck me. It turned into a thing, it turned into a thing. Like it was better to better for me to huck you than to even stage dive. And that was the moment. And that was still 1990, but that was the moment that I was converted to Seattle. I was not going to be a ski instructor in Telluride. I was not going to move to New York and be a member of a literary culture. I was going to be this, whatever this was for however long this lasted. And you know, Jesus, here I am, right? I, um, uh, everything I ended up doing was, was a product of that sort of fateful decision because at that age, Dan, I thought maybe I'll be an actor. And I didn't think Hollywood actor, but like maybe I'll go into the theater, be a writer, be a like musician was pretty far down. Really? Yeah, because I didn't feel like I didn't feel a particular calling to music and I didn't feel like I had any talent at it. Really? No, I was I, I assumed that I would be an actor. And a, a, and a stage actor. I I had no ambition to be a film or television actor. That just seemed like an other world. 
but stage but, like old fashioned Shakespeare. Uh, probably cats. not. Probably not Shakespeare or Phantom cats. of the Opera. You know, closer to a long day's journey into night ah. or uh, death of a salesman. But I was you know, trying like, to figure the singing aspect of it would have. I immediately what came to mind immediately was death of a salesman. By the way, when you said stage acting, so I'm glad yeah. to hear you say that. Yeah, that that's. <laughs> That kind of thing. Like I would be a playwright and actor who would be part of a a production a, company and well, or like a local alternative theater scene. And maybe one day you'd have a show that, that, uh, you know, they got rave reviews, that type of, that type of culture. That was probably what I, if you had asked me what, what I thought I would end up doing that certainly would have been higher up on the list of possibilities than that I become a rock musician. Because mm-hmm. I just, I, even then, even at 20, 20, 21 years old, it felt like the people who really wanted to be rock musicians had no, they knew that when they were 13. And at 20, I swear to you, I already felt like I was old to be to choose to be a rock musician at that point. Cause they, cause a lot of the people I knew by the time they were out of high school, they were, they were really pretty good at music. And I was, you know, I, I knew five or six chords on the guitar, but, and I had written a couple of songs, but they were jokey, jokey acoustic guitar songs. I hadn't learned anybody. I could play bad moon rising. I hadn't learned any covers. You know, learning the guitar was just a, it just seemed like something that, yeah, you spend a little bit of time, you you learn five chords, then you have that. But what I, the instrument I really wanted to learn was harmonica, but I couldn't. Oh, I think you'd be awesome at harmonica. Yeah, but I never could, I, I, I couldn't figure it out. And I realized that I was a pretty good whistler. And <laughs> that's, that's like a thing. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, I mean, cause what are I your was, skills? I, well, I'm, I'm a pretty fine whistler. Well, damn good whistler. But like the reason that I wanted to play the harmonica was I spent a lot of time in those early years hitchhiking and there's all those, all that time that you're out on a long stretch of road and there's nobody there and you're kind of walking if you're out in the middle of nowhere on a long stretch of road, you have a choice. Do I just stand here or do I walk? And then when you hear a car, you kind of turn around and stick your thumb out. And it always, I was always a walker. It feels like, well, I'm trying to get down this road. Even if I'm moving at three miles an hour on foot, at least I'm moving. Uh, and so I, so I'd walk along, you know, kind of whistling and, I really wanted to learn the harmonica because God, that really comported with my idea of here I am out walking on this road out in the middle of nowhere, playing the harmonica. God, it just was, I was desperate, but then I would get a harmonica and I would go, and I didn't, I guess it was that I didn't have that, that gift, that pull of, of, uh, that pull of music making that's like, I'm going to figure this out because, because there's something in me that need, that needs it. 
you know, I'd just put the harmonic in my pocket and whistle <laughs> and be just as amused. And it didn't require that I learn anything. Right. But I'm, I'm, I'm bummed. I'm bummed to this day that I don't know how to play the harmonica, even as well as Ryan Adams. I don't, you know, even as well as Bob Dylan, who basically was just like, hee honk, hee honk. Uh, I never even got that close. So, meh. Uh, I don't know. I would, I imagine, I remember that harmonic was actually the way that I wound up learning to play guitar. Really? Yes, because I was, uh, I was in high school and I really wanted to play guitar, but I did not have anywhere near the kind of money that I needed to buy even a basic guitar. And, you know, I, I, I also didn't really have like an in to that community. I didn't have any friends who, who played guitar. I didn't have really, I had a couple friends in a band, but they sucked. You know, like it was that kind of thing. Like I didn't, it's not like somebody, Oh, you can use my old guitar. I didn't know anybody. Uh, but I was really, you know, this is like into Zeppelin and Dylan and that kind of music where there, as you mentioned, harmonica featured prominently. So I, I could buy a harmonica, so I bought a harmonica. And I, I was horrible at it, trying to get that blue note where it could sound <laughs> like, a, you know, you bend, bend the... Yeah. yeah. If, if you're wondering what I'm talking about, listen to When the Levee Breaks, which is one long, <laughs> bent, blue note. Uh-huh. Um, I was really into it, though. And I think I think several weeks of that just pushed my mom to a point <laughs> where she's like, D is harmonica, you know, I remember asking, is harmonica really your, is it your thing? Like you really enjoy it? I'm like, well, yeah, kind of. She's like, is that what you really want to be playing? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, like, mom, what I really want is a trumpet. Yeah. She's like, yeah, well, you know, and I, funny, I, you mentioned that in fourth grade, I learned to play the trumpet in band and in like fifth and sixth grade, I played the saxophone. But, the harmonica was, I was not good at it at all. I mean, I, I have memories of how bad it sounded, but I think it must've been much worse than I'm remembering it yeah. because she was like, well, she's like, I'll get you a guitar and lessons if you're, you know, if you're not serious about the harmonica. And, uh, and then that brings us to that story of the Martin juggernaut mm -hmm. that I've told you about mm -hmm. before. And that's, yeah. that's how, that's how that was brought down from the attic that it had been stored in. But yeah, uh, my, yeah harmonicas. Offer, my dad offered me uh, guitar lessons in the following way. <laughs> this was how my dad operated on Christmas. When you would have Christmas at my dad's, what you had was he had a little Charlie Brown um, pine tree in a pot that was just one of the little trees that was in his house. Sure. And he would string one bit of string around this potted pine that was very Charlie Brown. You know, it was a little, a little blue spruce or a little Douglas fir or something living in a pot. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't that he didn't care. He really did. He really, he loved Christmas. He loved that stuff. It was just that he was a bachelor in middle age who just didn't know how to, and I see echoes of it myself. Like 
Right now, Dan, there are two Christmas stockings hanging from my. <laughs> well, you're mantle. prepared. You're for those who don't know, it's May. It's currently May. It's May, and <laughs> I still have two Christmas stockings hanging because I like them. And when I look at them, I can't. My eye doesn't see them anymore. They're just part of my, uh, part of the way my house is decorated. But like those Christmas stockings will be there in December when I need them. But so my dad had this little Charlie Brown Christmas tree. And then under the tree, there was a, a motley assortment of presents that had come from friends and so forth. But um, then my dad would have taken paper grocery sacks and folded them over once and stapled them. And oh. inside the grocery sacks would be presents that he clearly had bought the, the day before. Um, he wasn't very good at preparation at my mom's house for Christmas. It was perfect, right? A beautiful real Christmas tree decked out with all of our heirloom Christmas ornaments, every present perfectly wrapped arranged around the tree, like out of a catalog. My dad's house was a little bit more, well, a lot more of a jumble, but one particular year he reached his Zenith, which was, I opened a, a paper grocery sack and at the bottom of the paper grocery sack, there was a piece of paper and I picked up the piece of paper and it said, good for guitar lessons. Oh my God. <laughs> what, what this, this slip good for guitar lessons. And I was like, thanks dad. Oh and he my was gosh. Like, no problem, son. And it's like, you know, it might've been a slip that said good for one trip to the moon because right. there was no way you know, there was no way I was going to go find guitar lessons based on that <laughs> guarantee. Oh. So that was the extent of my guitar lessons. Good for guitar lessons. <laughs>